with Custodians of the Planet. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to environmental issues and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. According to the Climate Change Performance Index for 2019, Australia ranks close to the bottom in the red, very low performing category. The scorecard summary is pretty worrying. Australia continues to receive very low ratings in the categories greenhouse gas emissions, energy use, and climate policy. The country ranks at the bottom of low performance in the renewable energy category, with national experts criticizing the government for not putting forward any plans for renewable energy beyond 2020. Experts argue that national climate policy has continued to worsen. The government has no comprehensive emission reduction policy, no regulation of transport emissions, and no plans to phase out coal. Experts observe that the government has become an increasingly regressive force in international negotiations, attempting to weaken climate finance obligations, and dismissing the IPCC's 1.5 degrees report. Government actions are correlated with emission pathways and the current policies leading to a projected increase of emissions. Climate emergency declared in the UK, for example, but somehow doesn't resonate with the federal government and after the recent election doesn't seem to resonate with the majority of voters in the country either. If Australia maintains the status quo, that is without any climate policies, Australia is looking to a baked future. It seems the economic prosperity that is supposedly from coal is prioritized about the citizen's health and well-being. Today to talk about climate change politics, we have Dr. John Merson, who has been a consultant to UNESCO, IUCN, and the Department of Foreign Affairs, among others. He is the recipient of a United Nations Media Peace Prize. John, welcome to Custodians of the Planet. Thank you very much. John, first up, what is the United Nations Media Peace Prize and how did you come to win this award? Oh, that was um, some work I did uh, for the ABC Science Unit uh, many years ago, back in the 1980s. And this was for basically uh, really trying to communicate scientifically complex issues like climate change to a wider public audience and to make it both interesting, relevant and having some impact on behavior, which is what I've been to do. It's a known fact that human-induced climate change is real and happening. And today climate change became a world-changing issue. But nevertheless, there are still plenty of climate deniers and the debate continues. Could you give a brief history about the debate that surrounds the science? And how did climate science become such a divisive and intractable political issue? Yes, it is a puzzling thing, because for many people, when we will look back at the Montreal Protocols about chlorofluorocarbons back in 1986, it was very quickly resolved. The U.S. government, in a meeting in Montreal, following one that occurred in Geneva, were very quickly able to marshal forces saying, look, this is not in the public interest, this is a serious problem, science is uh, unequivocal, so we just ban chlorofluorocarbons 
fluorocarbons, which we use widely in air conditioning, refrigeration, and in chip manufacturing alike. So it was a hugely significant chemical technology associated with this. But it was no big problem. I think the reality, and everybody assumed that the carbon issue would be dealt with in the same way. Well, it wasn't. But we found that while basically by the time we get into the early 90s, the time when the Climate Change Convention was established in 1992, there was a feeling that this was going to be dealt in a similar way. The world's scientific evidence was quite unequivocal quite clear. The rise in carbon use was causing this greenhouse effect, been established since the 19th century, so there was nothing new about it. But the scale of what it was doing and what its impact would be on to the natural world and to our ability to sustain life on this planet was really fairly obvious, so we had to reduce carbon. Now, everybody went about this with a great deal of optimism, running to really through to 1996, when, of course, the, the famous election that brought George Bush to power. And this sort of suddenly brought into the discussion the interests of the fossil fuel industry as a whole. Now, whereas the smaller chlorofluorocarbon industry was able to be bought off because they had moved from fluorocarbons to hydrocarbons, which basically could supplant the need for fluorocarbons, it was a fairly simple technological shift. With regard to carbon, however, it wasn't quite so simple. You had a, the largest consolidation of economic power in the world, basically being put out of business by a bunch of politicians and scientists who weren't acting in point of view in their interest. And there wasn't an immediate solution to the problem, even though the rapid rise in renewable energy that's come about since then has certainly demonstrated that. So really from the beginning of, or let's say between the establishment of the convention in 1992, the IPCC, to really the election of Bush in America and then eventually Howard in Australia, we saw large uh, fossil fuel production countries like Australia and the US adamantly uh, opposing the conventions and the what was then the Montreal Protocol, which the US didn't ratify, nor did Australia until Rudd came in a decade later. So there's been a sort of a shift that occurred and it was quite easy, interesting to see the campaign that was led by the fossil fuel industry, a very interesting process in itself, because what had been basically throughout the 80s, the, really the environmental NGOs, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, really led the agenda on public engagement with environmental issues. Back in the 50s, of course, it was a chemical industry and the like who dominated this. Suddenly, you had these activist NGO groups like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth who were really out there creating news with huge memberships, something like 5 million members. They had laboratories, they could test chemical processes, run campaigns, and were really uh, changing the nature of the public awareness and the media's response to uh, issues. And what the fossil fuel industry did, but many by particularly Exxon, Caltex, um, BP, and many of the other large coal manufacturers, well, locked together and said, listen, we've got to do something like these guys are doing. And they started then a massive media campaign, buying shock jocks, setting up uh, think tanks that are fu massively funded to pour um, uh, basically critical views and of the science that underpinned climate, uh, the climate change modeling, and also uh, creating, as the, uh, the tobacco industry did very successfully in the same way, created doubt. 
Uh, they were the merchants of doubt. And the famous book on that title is really taking the same thing. And remember, the same, the same uh, uh, PR and advertising agencies that, that maintain the tobacco industry's denial that there was any connection between cancer and uh, tobacco smoking took up the issues of the fossil fuel issue and climate change to say, no, it's not proven. It's a flaky science. It doesn't stand up and blah, blah, blah. So you get this whole movement, which is funded at a massive scale. Billions of dollars were being put in around the world to undermine the science. So to understand why there is this sort of ambivalence, it cut across fundamental economic interests. Remember, at the time we're talking about, 25% of Australian export were related to fossil fuels, largely coal and the products that were produced by the coal industry here in Australia as, um, in terms of steel and, and the like. So there was a sort of a huge vested interest from government to keep the coffers full and to keep these industries from being challenged and potentially forced to out of business. Now, move forward to, into the 21st century, and we see a kind of shift that occurred again, back in the other direction. The Howard government came in here, the Clinton and um, actually uh, Obama administrations uh, came in, I should say the Obama administration came in, and there was a shift back to recognizing, hang on, this, is a, this has been a sort of conspiracy against the public interest. We really have to take action and to, to marshal forces towards getting a second convention, which was came out with the Paris Accord in 2015, following on from the Kyoto Protocols, which Australia eventually ratified. So it's been an on-again, off-again relationship. Then, of course, we get a swing back to the right, both with the uh, particularly the Trump administration pulling out of the Paris Accord and Australia being a sort of a lukewarm, certainly under Abbott, a positively sort of negative force in Australia taking strong action. It's difficult because it has economic adjustment problems associated with it. And so you can find a sort of degree of industrial and public sympathy with not doing anything until the evidence of climate change has started to kick in. And what we've seen in the last four or five years, to summarize the sort of span we're talking about, the reality of climate change, the extreme storms, extreme droughts, extreme floods, the insurance industry, which is one of the most influential funders of climate action and research who have to, on a regular basis, deal with the consequence of a massive increase in natural disasters and the cost of that. So you've got a sense that the reality is that climate is changing, not just as an academic theoretical thing, but as a reality in front of everybody's eyes. The heat waves we're having here in Europe and elsewhere are out of the range of the ordinary. And therefore, people are saying, hang on, there must be something here. And so what you have now is a swing back. If you look at the statistics, something like about 70% in the earlier period were said that climate change was obviously real, we have to do something about it. That went down to about 40% in the US. And then what we've seen now coming back up to in Australia for the last election, to about 70% again. So you've had this oscillation of public engagement and disengagement, largely driven by these very aggressive media campaigns on the part of the fossil fuel industry, and then the reality of that sort of collapsing as public and government realized it wasn't legitimate. I guess then it's fair to say climate change is the elephant in the room, and now it's getting tougher because there's so many crazy weather events occurring. It seems like turbulent times ahead us Let's talk about Australia. The majority of voters just re-elected the Liberal Coalition government, which has a terrible track record in terms of climate policy. 
This is despite the enormous student protests across the country earlier this year. How do you analyze climate change politics and how did Australia get here? Well, Australia's been, as I said, one of the countries that have been the laggards in the international community. One of the only, along with America and Saudi Arabia, one of the few countries that didn't embrace the Kyoto uh, Convention. And only when Rudd came in in 2008 did they begin to sort of engage effectively and positively with it. So Australia has been as a, a well-known denier of the climate change thing in the past and, and not a strong engagement, even though they did come in and become engaged, obviously, under Abbott with the Paris Accord, because I think pressure internationally and the reality of it, no intelligent person can really deny. The question is, do we have a lackluster approach to it? Unquestionable. And that's because of the very powerful influence of the fossil fuel industry and the mining industry in Australia and the desire not to lose the benefit we get from that from a government revenue as well as profits and employment from the point of view of the country as a whole. You look at the, the recent election and the support for the Adani movement that occurred in uh, Queensland. And you realize that this is sort of just not an ideological thing as it was in the earlier phase in terms of the narrow vested interest of corporations, what we're dealing with large groups within the country with a vested interest in the mining industry and the jobs, employment and the like that this means. So, so I think you've got to look at it both as an economic uh, issue and, and as it's being sold as such during an election period. Uh, Morrison did a very good job in that. He was able to hone in on this potential concern and a large concern in Queensland. I mean, 8% of unemployment in the Townsville area, which is just near the Galilee Basin, and the expectation of future jobs, keeping towns going, keeping money flowing through, even though it's been exaggerated. The benefit is really not very high. Adani was talking about 10,000 jobs at one stage. Now it's down to about 1,500. And many of these may be imported engineers coming in from India and elsewhere, and not a great deal, but there's revenue for state governments. There's activities going on. So it gives a sense of hope for a lot of people who feel that they haven't got a future. Now, the paradox is that Australian governments could have turned around. And already we're seeing, if you look at the number of people employed in terms of the growth, more people are employed in working in the renewable industry sector in Queensland than are in mining. But this doesn't seem to have been a matter that Morrison government and the LNP really wanted to push too far. If you thought about uh, achieving energy from the point of view of the coal, it's not for Australian use. But basically, we are oversupplied with uh, coal-fired power station and no sensible business person is investing in it. Peabody's the largest coal producers, but out of, out of the business. Uh, many, it's regarded as a stranded asset for most businesses and why the banks in Australia won't invest in it. It's just not in the, the long-term interest of putting money into a coal when it's an asset which has declining value. So it's only a short-term export opportunity. And I think that the way the politics has played is that the Morrison government saw that it was a way of wedging Greens and Labour out of office, and they successfully did it. The, whether or not, Adani will be successful as a mining venture. Remember, there's about $2 million that's got to go into building a rail system from the Galilee Basin across to the ports. There's got to be an ongoing and significant demand for this uh, coal, this high-quality coal, nonetheless. 
India is talking about reducing its um, reliance on fossil fuels. It's suffering huge atmospheric problems as a consequence of coal being used in other industries. And so there's a genuine international pullback, especially in the space in the face of uh, renewables, uh, wind and solar, a dropping cost well below what you can produce coal for in India. So, for instance, coal-fired power stations cost something like $7 a kilowatt, whereas in renewables are something like 40. So the difference in the actual investment and to get the outcome, the Indian government is saying this doesn't make sense. We should be investing in renewables as a basic source and also it's distributed. It's not so reliant on large centralized system which saves costs in wiring and poles and wiring and the like. So the logic across the planet and it's, not, it's in developed world and as much as it is in undeveloped, is that really coal is on its, and coal-fired power station, on their way out. You have a different existing infrastructure that can be maintained until the scale can be taken up by renewable energy systems. So it's not exactly a smart industry to be backing in a lot of money. And we'll see in the longer term whether, in fact, Adani even does get started, does get the finance it needs to um, get the mines going, and how long this will last. What was tragic in some respect in the action uh, was the huge amount of money that was put into advertising, attacking labor from Queensland. It actually sort of meant that the sort of any rational discussion about all this got totally eclipsed by a sort of the use of the issue and particularly climate as a political football rather than a rational, intelligent, bipartisan position, which it is in most other countries except Australia and the US. So you look at Europe, whether you're conservative or left of centre or right of centre, there's a general acceptance that this is not an issue for political grandstanding, but really one of how you do it better and how you get better outcomes. Here it's become still a political game because of both ours and the US's huge investment and traditional investment in fossil fuels. It's a risky political game. Some countries around the world, as you said, have been taking action and calling out other nations for their inaction. What is the role of international pressure on domestic climate politics? Because Australia doesn't seem to be ceding to that pressure, but will it have to eventually? No. Well, I mean, I think it's. It, I think it doesn't see the pressure as being anything that's going to have any particular negative effects on Australia. A bit of morale in some sectors, I mean, environment industries and the relationship to that, and a bit of public opprobrium in some quarters. But it's that's from the left of centre political groups, given the ascendancy now, this new right of centre economic nationalism. What the US and particularly the, the Trump administration is doing is basically pushing it out of court, saying, look, it's not our interest, we couldn't be bothered, we don't believe in it anyway, and it's not not be worth bothering with. So so Australia's got a bit of a, a kind of support base, as they had under the Bush administration as well, for being sort of lackluster and only partially doing things. I mean, it's, the government will say, yes, we're going to meet our targets, we're going to get there at a, at a canter, as, a, as Morrison often said. The reality is it's not. In fact, it's well behind its capacity to do it. And it's hoping that innovation going on in households, putting on rooftop solar, as well as industry, becoming more efficient. And uh, the like will actually get them over the line. I still think it's a, it's a very questionable calculus at this stage. What will happen now, in, as under the Morrison administration, having now sort of got into power using a sort of kind of 
it's not an anti-climate change argument, but saying uh, it's economically dangerous to be putting all this money into this area, it has a bad impact on the economy. I think despite that, they will be quietly looking around to see how best they can address what has been a very ineffective methodology of addressing climate. So I think you find in ministries below the political threshold, we'll be looking to work at doing something about the carbon um, and try to get it down by hook or by crook. How they'll do this, whether it'll be by smart accounting, which some have argued as being a fallacious exercise of looking at savings made from the Kyoto period can be used to underpin what we're doing in the next phase. It's kind of a bit uh, inappropriate and, and won't be accepted internationally. So Australia does have a, a seat at the table in Paris. And while Trump has looked like he's withdrawing, Australia's still there and has to account for what we're doing. And I think there is a, you're right, there's a sense in which international pressure in through these conventions, these conventions have been going through the UN for many, many years. And they are, they are soft power, but they're enormously influential on the behavior of states. States don't want the opprobrium of being pointed out to a bad citizen at a global level. And I think that there's Australia is as much as any other country wanting to not see themselves badly represented. So I think we'll be seeing quite a, a bit of uh, quite a diverse range of initiatives taken to quietly address this. I mean, the hydro projects, hydro um, snowy Hydro 2 project is one of these. A lot of the pumped hydro systems which are being established commercially will actually help Australia move towards a, a lower carbon economy. No one is putting any investment into coal-fired power stations, despite the nationals jumping up and down and saying we should be doing it. We'll be exporting all that coal out of uh, Galilee Basin. We'll not be putting it into coal-fired power stations here, or new ones, I should say. So I think that there's a sort of double act going on. One is uh, to make as much money for the minerals and fossil fuel industry that largely are one of the big funders for the national Liberal National Party, but also to be sensible and look at, A, the cost efficiency of renewals as uh, renewable energy as a only logical way to go, and using Australia's huge advantage in having pumped hydro system as a battery, as it were, for large-scale energy production through renewable means. And I think state governments are pursuing these, independent of their political persuasion. And so the issue, I think, will become less ideological, as it's been in the last couple of elections, which is a, a great shame, but it's a reality. I think it will, in fact, force to move as the industry is private. It's not a public, uh, not a government fiat. And despite the fact they're saying they should be funding coal-fired power stations, they're not doing it, even though there's political pressure from the likes of Barnaby Joyce and others to do so. It's not actually running. So I think that the, the more cooler heads, certainly in business, are saying, look, we're going to be investing in renewables. This is going to dominate the uh, international energy systems into the future. And we've got to be part of that. So I think independent of government position, the country's economy will be moving in that direction. And what do you think about whether coal is a blessing or a curse for Australia? Well, it's been a blessing insofar that it's, it's actually been a great export. We've had a huge coal deposits. We have a small population. Our need of it has is, is never been huge. So apart, we've had, of course, a reliance on coal-fired power stations. But it's mainly been an export industry. 
and it's employed a lot of people, Newcastle, from the Illawarra areas to the Latrobe Valley and elsewhere uh, around the country, a huge number of peoples and communities and townships and cities have been funded and maintained the quality of life they had by ripping out coal and dumping into the world markets. Until the issue of climate change came along, it was a, a blessing to everyone, except for the impacts of coal on health, which are really very significant. But ever since, it's become a blight because our reliance on it has made it difficult to shift away from the political investment and state investment has made. Remember, the electricity industry was, until recently, a state monopoly. And so these were state power plants that were put up, which were then sold off to private buyers in the the last few decades. So the, the privatization of energy meant that it was outside the hands of state governments and their political interests. So it's now... Uh, harder uh, business heads are looking at this and saying, hang on, we don't want this coal. So coal is a sort of, as I say, internationally a stranded asset. In the US, coal, despite Trump, coal use and coal application in energy has to is continually declined as it has been in the previous time because businesses realize it's not a, an effective means of uh, producing energy. In Australia, we still have this attachment to it because so many people got their jobs and their income out of it. Whole areas were sort of dominated by it, like the Hunter region and the like. So there is a political pull there, both not just from the corporations and businesses that benefit, but from labor unions and the like in the mining industry. And it's very interesting in Queensland, the, the sort of difficulty labor had in representing their position over Adani, when even labor members from the unions were saying, we want a commitment to the coal mining industry. When in reality, it's really a declining industry. It's a declining resource. And I say, from all from a financial point of view, the divestment, the largest divestment ever occurred in history, is the divestment of institutions out of coal. And this has been going on in the past two decades, and most recently in the last few years. The insurance industry is pulling out under pressure of their clients. Banks are pulling out basically because it's a, an unwise investment in any terms. And so it's really both has been a blessing, but now it is certainly not. We are holding a very, very large stranded assets, which fortunately a number of our corporate mining giants are trying to rip it out as quickly as possible and pick up whatever they can and just leave a few half-done holes in the ground. I fear it's going to be the outcome. Whether the Galilee Basin really goes into operation is still an uncertainty. I don't know the finances of Adani, but I can't see that would even if it did start, it would go for, any, for very long. And the investment may be another stranded asset that Australia would be involved with. So I think there's some really difficult questions to be looked at in terms of how we view coal in the, in the future. Dr. Joe Merson is an honorary professor at the University of New South Wales. John, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Custodians of the Planet is an independent and freely available media program and it relies entirely on contributions from listeners. If you appreciate what we do and would like to support us, there are a few ways to do so. Start a conversation with your friends and colleagues and be part of the change. Share a link to our podcast on social media. Donate to our podcast. Each episode is the product of hours of on-location audio recording 
editing, research, scheduling, and music composition. Just $10, a couple of coffees will sustain the hours of labor that go into producing each episode and ensure Custodians of the Planet is an ongoing series. Thank you for your support. Say special thanks to Bonnie Paris for editing the script. Christian Fortis for his technical support. I'm Denise Ildiz. Stay tuned for the next episode and thank you for listening. I'm just working